You're listening to Irish Radio Canada, and a few weeks back we had the opportunity to chat with uh, Irish Member of Parliament, Alan Farland. They're re- referred to as Chakta Dala, uh, and as deputies. And uh, unlike the Canadian system, there are multi-seat constituencies, there are, which means that what we refer to as a riding has numerous elected representatives, and they're not all from the one party necessarily. Uh, It would be highly unusual if there were. And under the electoral system in Ireland, which is proportional representation, it means that various smaller parties particularly are able to find representation into Parliament, which of its nature leaves a more diverse Parliament, uh, unlike what we're used to as first-past-the-post, which makes it very difficult for smaller parties to find representation. So uh, I'm looking forward to having a chat here about a whole lot of issues, and that being one of them. Uh, Deputy Farrell, first of all, thanks a million for taking the time to have a chat. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. I threw in there as a starter about the difference in the electoral systems, and you're representing um, an area around Dublin, Dublin Fingal. Uh, From a geographic perspective, where are we talking about? Okay, um, well, any uh, anybody listening in, um, if they fly to to, to Dublin and um, they land in my in my constituency uh, or riding, as you as you described, um, so you're 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 approximately 15 kilometres north of Dublin city centre, um, and my constituency is quite large. It's 180 square kilometres. It's about 26 kilometres tall and about 15 kilometres wide. Very small in Canadian context, but quite large uh, in, in an Irish political context. Um, as you rightly pointed out, it's a multi-seat constituency, so there's five members uh, of, of Parliament uh, of the House of Commons, um, uh, of which I am one. I'm a member of the largest political party in Ireland, uh, Fine Gael. Uh, we would be, I suppose, centre to centre right. Um, and we're currently in, in a minority government scenario. We're being supported by the second largest political party, which would be centre centre right as well. Um, but for historic reasons, there's two different parties. Um, so my constituency, as you rightly point out, has a, a plethora of smaller parties represented, um, as well as the two big ones. And how many? What would the population be of your right? Uh, well, our cons- our constitution provides that there's thirty thousand people per member of parliament, and so that's the upper limit. If it goes to thirty one thousand, you have to get an extra seat. Um, and the overall uh, result of that across the the island or across the twenty six counties of the Republic of Ireland it, at the moment is one hundred and fifty eight members of parliament. Uh, there would be one hundred and sixty. At the, after the next general election because of um, population growth. So the population of my constituency is about uh, 122,000 voters. Um, and that is, uh, sorry, 120,000 people, um, of which I think about 80,000 are voters. Um, so we, w- we would routinely get, you know, 60, 65% turnout on election day. And uh, the five seats are divided up in that way. This is an interesting question as well that listeners would be particularly aware of some of the issues that are happening south of our border in the United States where uh, electoral boundaries are being redrawn and they seem to have a different method or an interesting method of doing it there. So when you mentioned that if, for example, within your uh, riding, your constituency, that you go over a certain threshold... Uh, is it possible at that stage that there was something like an electoral commission or something would say rather than put in an extra seat, what we should do is redraw a boundary? 
Exactly, and you're, you're absolutely right. And that is precisely what happens. We, we have a, an independent electoral body uh, assigned to uh, assess the census information, which provides, um, obviously, the detail on population growth. Um, and they then determine the size and shape of the constituency. In my particular community, uh, I have multiple towns. I have uh, one very large town, over 50,000 people, called Swords. Um, I have two sort of medium-sized towns at about 15,000, which is Malahide, where I'm from, and Balbriggan in the northern end. And then I have another seven smaller towns, or less than 10,000, uh, dotted into this particularly large constituency of 180,000 square kilometres. So it, they would look at it from a, from a logical perspective. So they assess the entire country based on the number of TDs required under the constitution, um, and they divide up the country in that way. So in my case, the boundary was um, was not changed recently, um, even though uh, the rest of the country was changed somewhat to accommodate the two extra members of parliament that I, that I mentioned will be provided for because of population growth. So in, in other places, for instance, if any of your listeners are, are familiar with Tipperary, Tipperary was for a number of years two, it was divided into Tipperary North Riding and Tipperary South Riding. And uh, it is now a five-seater rather than a six because of political reasons for reducing the number of members of parliament. So it has changed quite a bit in the last few years. I personally will be of the view that, um, you know, the less change in political boundaries, the better. But you're right, in America, they do things very differently. The political parties, the political parties divide up the country politically, which is not, not appropriate in my view. I don't know how they do it in Canada, but in Ireland it's, it's done independently. So you're a member of what we call the, the House of Commons, the equivalent. So then in the Irish system as well, there is a Senate and there's a head of state in yeah. the form of the President. But the Senate in Ireland is a mixed form of uh, appointment and election. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's quite a complex one. and It, it was reconstituted and about 60 years ago, I'm afraid I don't recall the date right now, but um, there are um, electoral panels um, and then there are university panels. The general public doesn't have a vote, um, only politicians have a vote and university graduates, but not all universities, which is even more complicated. Um, so it, there are educational panels, there are industrial panels, there are labour panels. Uh, it, it is very complex, but there are 60 members, 11 of whom are appointed by the Prime, Prime Minister or Taoiseach, and um, the balance then are elected either through members of um, members of both houses of the Oireachtas, the Dáil Senate, and, uh, and local authority members, so councillors, of which there are 990, I believe. In Ireland, um, so the, the and then there's about 100 to 150,000 people who have college degrees who choose to vote. So it's a very complex, arcane, ridiculous system, quite frankly. Uh, but it does provide us with really, truly independent people, non-politically aligned, you know, college professor types or university professor types. Um, very interesting people who really do contribute to the political fabric uh, of Ireland. So. Um, we might decry the manner in which it is elected, but ultimately it does throw in some interesting people into political life.
um, and by and large they're beneficial to the, to the process. And the Senate in Ireland uh, is um, it, it collapses when the Dáil collapses unlike other systems where senators mm-hmm. are appointed for life. That's right yeah. the, the Irish Constitution provides that the, the House of Commons sit for seven years so from the election on, on, on the first uh, day it must have another election in seven years now by, by custom it's actually five years and um, so we never go more than five years in one month um, and the Senate um, rotates around um, this, the rising and, 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 and sitting of, of, of the doll of, of the House of Commons so when there's a general election in Ireland we, we elect um, the House of Commons directly and um, within 90 days there must be a Senate election um, in the manner which I, I outlined um, electing uh, the what is it, uh, 49 uh, senators and then the, the Prime Minister then appoints the other 11 and then you have a properly functioning um, upper and lower House of Parliament. Um, the House of Parliament, the, 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 the Senate in Ireland, uh, most, most likely unlikely a lot of Senates, doesn't have voting rights over financial matters. So they may scrutinise but they may not vote against budgets for instance. Um, any financial resolution, they're not permitted to interfere with it, that's only in the hands of the of the members of the House of Commons or the law. So um, it is an unusual one. It means that they're somewhat powerless in the context of how other houses of parliament operate. Um, but as I've said, because of the makeup and the individuals who are mostly non-political people, uh, or mostly non-political party people, I should say, it, it does sort of add to the process uh, what we do to, to get over that the fact that they don't have voting rights over budgetary matters is we introduce a lot of bills and uh, legislative processes in the Senate so that they can scrutinise it at a very early stage um, and then give us effectively a finished product that um, we can then debate um, you know, on its merits and amend if required. So it, it, it is an interesting way of doing things. It's probably not the most efficient, but it's, it's what we've got. And we've tried many, many times to reform the way in which the Senate, Senate works um, with varying degrees of success. Uh, but I think we're, we're, we, we put it to the people to abolish it in 2012, and they voted to keep it. So we're stuck with it. <laughs> So uh, I, I know that, uh, be it at the last election, or maybe it was the previous election, that the Taoiseach of the day appointed some non-resident senators. Yes, that's right. We, we appoint, uh, Enda Kenny, the previous um, Taoiseach, appointed um, Billy Laws, who is an Irish-American uh, from Chicago, um, to represent the diaspora. Um, there has also been a, a number of other appointees over the years, including unionists from Northern Ireland, um, and, you know, that the nature of the of the Senate was a replica of the House of Lords. So there, it was originally uh, chaired uh, by a uh, Lord Dunavi, uh, who was a, a, an Anglo-Irishman. And so, you know, there, there has been a tradition there of appointing the people of significance, uh, both North and South, and then more recently, the American Connection. Um, uh, through Billy Lawless, who's actually a, uh, a colleague of mine on the car, on my corridor in Leinster House, uh, which is the seat of, of, of the Dáil and Challenge. Um, so, yeah, it has brought an interesting dynamic to debates because of the recession in Ireland a decade ago. We exported, as we usually do, our people. And, um, you know, we, we felt particularly in Irish America 
um, that there was a need for a voice, and, and Billy has provided that voice quite effectively over the over the last number of years. We've been hearing about the electoral process from Deputy Alan Farrell, a member of Fine Gael in the Irish Parliament, the Oireachtas. And one of the things that fascinates me, I want to move on and we're going to talk about the presidential system because we've heard about the electoral system in the Dáil and the Senate. But one thing that really puzzles me, Alan, is that when it comes to proportional representation and when it comes to the distribution of surpluses, how is it decided which actual bundle of ballots is distributed and how can you be sure that the second preference on that bundle of balance, ballots is actually an accurate representation of the second distribution? Well, it, it, it's a, that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> the, the, the first answer I would give you is that it, it, there's an element of randomness in it the second uh, part of the answer would be that uh, when there is a transferable, or when, when a, a, a transfer or a surplus is being distributed, and um, the presiding officer will always do his best to ensure that what is available is transferable. Um, so you will rarely find, uh, unless you get down to you know this, the, the, the fifth or sixth or seventh or eighth count, so the fifth or sixth or seventh or eighth occasion in which you're distributing surpluses. The returning officer will always do their best to ensure that, that what is available is actually transferable so that there's no non-transferable ballots in the pile. It's only in later stages that uh, you'll find that there isn't the, the votes available for, for, for the non-transferables to be, to, be, um, to be put to one side. But there is an element of randomness to it. But what, what is key to that, because if you randomly selected bundles when you were transferring or, or distributing a surplus and then went to a recount and put all the bundles back and did it again, you have to pick the same ballots. So you're only permitted to, to recheck the ballots that were made available for distribution. So you don't get a different result each time. You're only checking the accuracy of the count on the ballots which were made available for distribution, which is entirely fair because in the first instance the bundles are random in any event. So then the tally men who would be peering yeah. anxiously over the guardrails, um, are, are quite adept at getting a glimpse or figuring out where second preferences might be going or stuff like that. Yeah, and it, it, it's critical, actually. Uh, over a period of time, I, I've stood in four elections, two local elections and two national elections, and in my time, I've been able to determine one particular community within my um, uh, um, constituency which is uh, quite prone to giving me number twos, but not number ones, because they like their local candidate. Um, and I wouldn't have been able to determine that without the help of tally men, uh, or women for that matter. Um, and their job is to literally sit uh, on the guardrail, as you've mentioned, looking at the person counting the ballots, but not counting the ones, because that's what the person sitting in front of them is doing, but to count the twos and the threes and the fours so that we can determine what, what the likelihood of, a, of, an, of electoral success for a specific individual um, who that tally person is working for. So in my own case, and as I referenced, that particular community is actually Port Marnock, which is near where I live in Malahide. Um, and, you know, I've been able to base the investment that I might put into that particular community from an electoral perspective, the amount of time that I might spend there, 
um, working, looking for votes. Uh, obviously, all of my constituency, like any politician, particularly at a national level, your time is 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 um, your time is precious, and sometimes it's difficult to get to to get to out to every community um, once a week or twice a week or, or or once a month or whatever it might be. But um, you you tend to look at that community and spend a little bit more time there if they're more prone to supporting you, and that's just the reality of politics, really. So now let's go back to the first questions, because you've just told me that you get a high second preference in one area. And yet, if the one who has been getting the first preference gets past the post before you do, and it's their distribution, it's their surplus has been distributed, it's critical for you in reality then that, well, it's preferable if you could get the Port Marnock bundle is the one that's selected to be transferred. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to keep track, though, of the bundles because the bundles are moving around the room. They're 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 going to, you know, the, the pile where Alan Farrell is 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 uh, number of first preferences are are being stored. The the balance then for the number two and that first person is elected and and the number twos become number ones for counting purposes. It's very difficult to actually correlate as to where they came from in the room. So. We have um, our, our electoral system is incredibly complex. But uh, a ballot paper in front of you, ten candidates with ten names, ten faces, ten logos for their political party affiliation, and then ten blank boxes. And in those ten blank boxes, you can put one to ten in order of your preference. So it's critical to know where the the, the vote has come from, and that's why we have each individual community is broken down into approximately 700 voters in a box. So if 50% of people turn out, there's going to be around three to 400 voters, uh, votes, I should say, in that box. So I can, within a reasonable uh, estimation, determine what community voted for me and how, and whether they gave me twos or whether they gave me threes. So, But when you go to distribution, it's somewhat different because the ballots are not geographically spread. They are spread per individual candidate who has achieved those number ones. So they'll all go off to one part of the room. So if you then go to the third or the fourth or the fifth count, those ballots are all over the place. So you really don't know where they're coming from. Um, and, and, and that is the random nature of, of proportional representation. Yeah, it is fascinating. And, and as we said earlier on, you know, it tends to give a distribution of seats uh, across roughly what would be the political spectrum, which is the fascinating part of it. Yeah, I, I, I suppose from my own perspective, you know, my own constituency is, is a five-seater. So there's five of us representing all five or well, four major political parties and then one independent. So, And that is a very normal uh, across the board. It's rare in, in electoral politics and in, at a national level that you'll get more than one of the same party in the same constituency. So taking a step down the political ladder in in order of of representation. Before someone would probably aspire towards national politics, they may have gone through the county uh, council system. Um, Could you give us a little insight into how that is structured? Certainly. Um, Well, firstly, I was a a local authority member myself um, for seven years, or just just under seven years from, from 2004 to 2011. 
um, again, very much like our national parliaments, um, split down on a geographic basis on a, with a specific number of seats in each, um, they're called wards here, electoral wards. Um, so my own community is the Holt Malahide Ward, it's a, a seven-seater. Um, again, complete spread of seats, the seven different uh, parties or, or ideological groupings represented. Um, they are elected uh, exactly the same way as all of our other elections. Um, which is proportional representation. And um, the structure at local authority level is, I suppose for want of a better description, our councillors are like boards of director, uh, a director, boards of director. Um, so they're each individual directors for the local community. They have a say over uh, a lot of the structure of local government in terms of how finance is allocated. But they wouldn't have the same level of authority as, say, the United States, which I think most people listening would probably know a good bit about how US local authorities operate their police force, they operate in certain instances their health services. In Ireland um, it is really only local matters so streetlights, community parks, libraries, national roads that fall in their communities are, are maintained by local authorities um, and there are certain other elements, even water has been removed from their remit now, it is now centralised national authority. So their their role and scope is actually quite limited, um, and for that reason, we actually have a quite a high rate of attrition with our councillors. That they, they some of them in in the past used to stay for twenty thirty years. Now we tend to get you know five to ten, maybe possibly fifteen year councillors in the main. Um, so there is a high rate of attrition. We have improved how local government is structured here, but personally speaking, having looked at countries all over the world, we do have quite a weak local authority system and, and we really should delegate more responsibility, I think, to, to, to local community representatives. On that level, we actually have this week uh, our local elections for the mayor and uh, our councillors. And one of the other aspects of our politics is that the trustees of school boards are actually elected also, and that all happens uh, during this week. Um, but uh, when you identify or mention there about local politics in, in the Canadian environment, like our um, city, which would be the equivalent of, of the county council, has uh, the police, has education. Um, they're responsible for the first responder community uh, in addition mm. to a lot of the other uh, issues that you raise, like parks and recreation, things like that. Mm. Um, but uh, the... Um, our councillors receive a salary. Or do do Irish councillors receive any remuneration other than expenses? They they do. Um, local authority members are paid one quarter that which is received by our senators. So um, a councillor in Ireland receives about nineteen thousand euros. It, it is not considered a salary. It's a representational payment. Um, and then beyond that, there are other um, allowances that they would receive um, dependent on their workload, dependent on their phone bills and things like that. But it, it wouldn't really get beyond 25,000 or perhaps 30,000 euro for a local authority member. Um, our mayors, I was mayor in 2007 through to 2008, elected by the councillors themselves, of which I was one. Uh, for a one-year term, um, and I think my own salary back then was an additional 30000 or something like that for that role, which was full-time. Um, it also depends which local authority you're in, because some local authorities around Ireland 
have a higher payment for um, their um, officer positions within the local authority itself, so chairpersons of such and such a committee or mayor or deputy mayor or Cahirloch as they're sometimes referred to in Ireland, which is the Irish for, for, for chairman. Um, so it actually depends, but it, the, the general rule is one, third, one quarter of the salary of a senator who would receive approximately two-thirds of the salary of a national parliamentarian. Right. So moving then to the bigger picture, um, Ireland is a member of the EU and we're all very aware of the issues relative to Brexit and things are going on there, but from a representation point of view, how is Ireland represented at the EU and how is that representation um, achieved? Okay, well the European Union um, I suppose has for want of a better description, it has an executive, it has an authoritative legislative body, uh, which is the parliament itself, and then it also has the judicial element to it, which would be um, not unlike any other country if established. Um, from our perspective, we vote, or we elect, I should say, 11 um, MEPs, or members of the European Parliament, every five years on a fixed-term basis. Um, they form part of the 700-strong parliament, um, which vote on um, legislative matters or debate issues that need to be addressed by individual parliaments or individual countries. Um, and then above that, then there's the executive. So we, we then vote for, um, or elect rather within the parliament itself, uh, commissioners who would be responsible on a, a segmental basis, very much like um, ministers would be uh, in any normal government, uh, so there would be one responsible for agriculture, there would be one responsible for for finance, there would be one responsible for housing, etc., etc. So those commissioners elected, Ireland actually holds the um, uh, agriculture um, and fisheries commissionership at the moment, um, um, and that changes every few years. That The commissioner position is a seven-year term, and I think Phil Hogan, the person who holds that post, has been in it for five years, I think. So, um, And then, obviously, there's the President of the European Council is elected by the Council itself. And there's also the Presidency of the uh, Parliament, which, again, is elected by the Parliament. So it is a very democratic process. Um, we would also have quite a number of uh, um, civil servants who would work in Brussels and Strasbourg, the base of the parliaments uh, at a European level. Um, and they issue what, is, what are called directives or regulations. Um, the directives are obviously directing the countries to, to follow what is contained in that document or regulations, which can be, um, I suppose it's quite a complex matter, but they would deal with um, what we refer to in Ireland as a statutory instrument, which would be how to implement a particular law that has already been passed through Parliament. Um, uh, so they would they would give us directions and, and, and regulations on, on a weekly basis, which then have to be adopted uh, by our parliament um, uh, to implement them into Irish law. So it can be quite a complex process. The European Union, nobody said it was easy. <laughs> um, certainly from my perspective, I've been in Brussels many, many times, and uh, part of the process can be, can be fascinating, and, but, but sometimes it can take a very, very long time for uh, matters to be implemented. So then coming back into uh, Ireland itself, and Ireland has a head of state in the form of a president. 
Yes, uh, well, we, we, we have a titular head of state. Um, our president uh, is Michael D. Higgins. Um, he's up for re-election at the moment. In fact, there's a poll in tomorrow morning's paper which suggests he's at 69% of the popularity polls. So I think it'll be very difficult for him not to be president uh, after the election day, which occurs next uh, Friday, the 26th, I think it is. Um, president Higgins uh, would be, whose main responsibility in, in, in the Irish context um, a very important role, but he is effectively our chief ambassador. Um, he would sign laws, um, sign um, bills into law uh, and to ensure that they're constitutional, but his main role and function would be um, as, a, as an ambassadorial position. Um, our Taoiseach, our head of government, has the, the real authority within our, within, our, um, within our political system. I know during the various debates uh, for this election and previous elections, various people have indicated that they have policy positions that they would pursue. But in reality, the president is not in a position to pursue any policy. No, um, I, I suppose, uh, as well as being an ambassador, that there is an, an advocacy role that I would certainly agree with in terms of people putting forward ideas. But really, what they are inferring is that they would have an ability to implement those policies. In fact, they don't. Um, and this is often a matter that occurs uh, in, in Irish presidential elections where a particular candidate might espouse particular views. Um, and the reality of it is, is that it really would be a political matter and, and they're not being elected to a political role um, and therefore they're not in the position to adopt it. But that is not to say, if you look back in Irish history, what certain presidents have done in their tenure. For instance, Mary Robinson would have spent a, an awful lot of time in Northern Ireland building bridges, um, which were very beneficial in the years following when we uh, obviously signed the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. Uh, she was no longer president at the time, but a lot of groundwork had been done in terms of opening doors and opening up a discussion between both communities in Northern Ireland and indeed with ourselves. That was followed on um, by Mary McAleese, who was the, the president thereafter for 14 years, two terms. Um, and those sort of discussions are very beneficial. Um, to the overall process within a, within within our republic, um, they can highlight matters which sometimes may not be given the level of attention that they should be given by by a parliament or by our local authorities. So the president does have a very important role in in, in acting as an advocate and acting as a I suppose you could almost call it a, a sort of a moral compass somewhat uh, from time to time, depending on the subject that is raised. Um, I have not experienced a negative side of the presidency um, on an individual basis anyway. Um, they have never really strayed into the political sphere, but there, it can happen from time to time. Our, our sitting president um, extolled the virtues of, of, uh, of uh, Castro, for instance, which didn't go that, down that well in, in certain parts within the Irish Republic uh, nor, or elsewhere. But, you know, they're, the person itself, is, uh, they're elected by the people. Our current president received a vast mandate over 50% of people who voted in uh, in 2011 to elect him. Over a million people supported him. So he has a, he's a huge mandate and it looks, as I mentioned, as if he's about to receive an equally large mandate from, from the people to be re-elected. So, Alan, one of the other roles I think that I understand the President does have um, ambit in is that if, before signing a bill into law, the President has any reason to have reservations 
uh, that mm. they have the ability to have, refer it to be it, is it the Council of State or to the courts? Yeah, and, and I should, should be clarified, it's, it's a, a legal uncertainty um, uh, as to the constitutionality of the bill as opposed to difficulty with it from a personal perspective. So, they, just, just to clarify that point, but yes, they do have the option to refer it to the Council of State. The Council of State will make a recommendation, which is then shared with the President, and the President then makes the, their, their decision as to whether to sign the bill or not. Uh, he or she may also refer the bill directly to the Supreme Court. Now, that's quite a controversial step here, because what it does is, if the Supreme Court determines that the bill is constitutional, the President then will sign it into law. Nobody else can challenge it. Uh, unlike a decision supported by the Council of State where the President might sign it into law and then a third party, a citizen, can can challenge the government on that particular bill or that piece of legislation as it has been signed into law in, at the Supreme Court themselves and others then may challenge it as well on elements of law. So it, it is a rarity that the President would challenge a bill that's provided by the Houses of the Oireachtas or the Houses of Parliament um, but it does happen from time to time. There was a matter in 2013 um, regarding uh, partial access to abortion in, in Ireland, and that bill um, was referred to the Council of State, who um, supported the President's decision to sign it, and, and, and it was signed into law. So, you know, there can be occasions where um, the President will use that, that option. Uh, the Council of State itself then is made up of former Presidents, uh, former Kishi, former Taoiseach, former Prime Ministers, former judges, Supreme Court judges, among others. So it's, it's a very well-informed group. So that it, would, it strikes me, based on the various layers of government and the checks and balances, that the system as it has evolved uh, serves the Irish population very well. I'd like to think it does. Um, as, I, as I mentioned from the outset, I think our local government structures are quite weak on an international comparative basis, and I would like to improve how our local authority members do their job and what they do their job on because unlike the Canadian system we have no role over education, we have no role over policing, we have no role over water infrastructure for instance. So those, I think those areas need to be improved but we have certainly learned an awful lot from those whom we inherited the system from which is the British um, and we've improved it our way um, and as indeed they have improved it their way in the, in the hundred years since we, we parted company. But there have been elements to it that have been challenged over the years, um, oversight within um, uh, oversight and standards within Irish politics are now very much a matter for, for, for discussion. We have what's called the Standard and Public Office uh, Commission who um, make determinations on politicians and returns that they make and requirements that they have to, to for, for public disclosure of personal matters. So it is a, it is a very thorough process. I'd like to think we've learnt um, a lot in the last few years in particular, you know, going from a, a political crisis to, to a housing crisis to, you know, a Brexit crisis or whatever is coming after that. Um, but, you know, you, you, you never stop learning, I don't think, in, in a political sense, um, whether you're a practitioner or whether you're a public servant or whether you're a citizen. You're always learning from what is occurring around you and you're always attempting to improve the scenario that you find yourself in. And, and I think that is true to pretty much any, any job or any uh, functional uh, company or structure. So uh, that's, uh, that's, 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 our, that's our system. So to bring it a full circle, because you had your recent trip to Canada. Yes. 
mingle and meet with your um, colleagues on our side of the, the Atlantic and uh, had a little bit of time since to uh, reflect on the trip. Um, how would you summarize in uh, that at this stage? Well, I certainly learned a great deal when I was there. Um, I was particularly impressed with um, with uh, the knowledge of the, our interrelationship, particularly on a trade side, that a number of parliamentarians whom I met uh, from all over the country had, and the interest um, to, to come and attend a, a meeting um, in, in your parliament building uh, some, some weeks back. Um, the other, I suppose, important aspect uh, was the was the trade, the potential trade and op opportunities for both countries um, to increase our trade, certainly since various trade agreements have been made, some of which are, are yet to be ratified but will be following a particular court challenge in Europe is, is completed. Um, you know, there are great opportunities. I think with Brexit in, in the European Union context, there will be other options available for Canada, both in terms of the United Kingdom and the European Union that I think since my visit um, I've certainly looked into. Um, I'm very fortunate, Austin, I have a, a very the largest airport in Ireland located within my constituency and it is a very large contributor to um, our, our, uh, our GNP and as a result I would um, always take a look at the airline industry and import exports. So I did meet a number of uh, ministers when I was there to, to discuss that very subject on how to improve our, our trade relations and I've had follow-up meetings since um, in the, within the Irish uh, political system uh, on that. So, you know, certainly there was a great deal learned. It was an eye-opening experience for me, albeit very brief. I was only in the country for, for 37 hours, so um, perhaps on the next occasion I'll, I'll be able to spend a bit more time. <laughs> you, won't, you won't be grabbed at the airport to go back for a vote? No, hopefully not on this occasion. Indeed. Well, Deputy Alan Farrell, I want to thank you again for taking so much of your precious time and I really appreciate it because uh, I know you're taking time from family and it's been fascinating and educational and it's a topic that I have wanted to cover for quite a while uh, to try and share with the listener the interesting and complex nature of the Irish electoral system. And you've done a fantastic job. Thank you very much, Austin.